Welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. My name is Cars Fox and I'm your host for this season. I also have the honor to introduce the upcoming new host of the Rage Podcast, Nicola Parker. Hi, I'm Nicola Parker. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm currently a first year master's student studying public policy with a concentration in human rights and social justice at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies here at DU. My dream has always been to host my own talk show, so I'm extremely honored to be working with Karis in this transition and excited to explore topics pertaining to social justice, underserved communities, and the intersects of these issues at DU, in Colorado, the US, and globally. Both Mikla and I will be creating an episode formally introducing Mikla and signifying my transition from the host position of the Rage podcast. But today, we have the opportunity to co-host our guest, Ian Thomas DeFoya of Green Latinos. Ian Thomas DeFoya will also be a guest along with Dr. Nadia Kim for the upcoming iRISE April 12th event, A Call for Climate Justice. If you would like to further your understanding of climate justice issues, armed with the knowledge of both Ian DeFoya and Dr. Nadia Kim, please be sure to register for a call to climate justice and join us for this day of action. You can find the link to register in the description box below. As stated, today we had the honor to host one of our guests, Ian Thomas DeFoya on The Rage. Ian is active in Denver public affairs, Colorado public policy, and federal environmental policy. He has worked for three branches of local government, worked at three levels of American government, run for Denver City Council, and has directed many local and state political races. Currently, he serves as the Colorado State Director of Green Latinos. Ian has received recognition for his work from the Denver Regional Council of Governments, the Denver Regional Air Quality Council, named a river hero by the National River Network, and was recently elected the co-chair of the Colorado Environmental Justice Action Task Force. He loves to dance, whether it is at concerts or in politics. As Mr. Denver, a local music DJ and radio host, he uses the media to uplift locals in the community. Follow Ian at Believe Ian on all platforms. Ian is a water protector and holds a BA in political science with a minor in Native American studies, a water studies certificate, an early childhood education certificate from the Metropolitan State University of Denver, as well as a horticulture therapy certificate from Colorado State University. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Thank you again for meeting with us. My first question that we have today is, how has dancing, DJing, and just the arts in general helped your understanding of advocacy slash policy work? And how has your passion become an extension of that work? Well, I appreciate that question. You know, I think the arts play just such a fundamental part in culture. And to be quite frank, the the profession of entertainment is inherently political because it involves people. And you have to learn how to navigate between people, between people's beefs. Uh, you know, sometimes that plays out actually, you know, like they have dance battles or you have artists that compete against each other or, you know, you're competing for slots and for time. And, you know, a lot of that comes to your ability to work and collaborate with other people. I think collaboration in dancing, DJ, in the arts is something that is transformational for everybody getting ahead. If you look at the DJing and the co-hosting that I do on the radio, it's really about using the media to lift people in our community 
And then you can also use that platform to educate people about advocacy or policy. You know, I know that my bio says I love to dance in politics or, you know, in a concert and it feels very similar. You have to sense where people are, you have to meet people where they are. Um, you have to be fluid in order to understand it. And you also kind of have to have fun, I think, with it. And I think now coming out of the pandemic, it is even more important for us to bring the arts because the arts are these really cultural workers were hugely important and they played a large role in my work with Headwaters Protectors to provide water and trash service to the unhoused. They played a huge role in the resiliency of COVID testing stations and vaccination sites, right? You think about people doing box office work and registration, they meet with each other. And so I've had a chance to work on some projects that are about how do we advance that resiliency? How do we build arts into these, these people who have clearly organizing skills uh, for climate disaster, um, for just disasters or emergencies in general? And what I have found is, and I'll say this to anybody listening, if you're involved with a group right now, collaborations is going to be your best bet because we could all have 10 person meetings or we could all collaborate and have 150 people. And then you start to feel like you're part of the movement. Then the building of bridges happens, not just with staff members across organizations, but with actual members across it. And, you know, when we do DJ at rallies, when we take it up a level that way, you know, it really just brings a different tone. And I actually was talking with someone yesterday, Los Mocochetes, and they were saying, you know, when, you, when you're listening to the music or when you're dancing and you're in that space, it makes you more receptive to the oneness that is required to understand climate justice and environmental justice and to be able to take those next action steps to get out of your space. That is so beautiful. And thank you for your response. I'm going to let Cars ask the beginning parts of the second one, because I know this feature in the sun is something that she's brought up before when we've talked. And so I'd love for her to expand a little bit about um, these initiatives, especially that are talked about in this article. Yeah, you had talked about like collaboration. And I think something at iRISE that we really try to focus on or center is the interdisciplinary aspect. So bringing all disciplines together so not holding um like the legal side of things in higher esteem when you hold the arts because they all come together and actually a mentor of mine was actually someone who had introduced the idea of starting out each meeting with music and just some fun music to get us started and we dive into racial justice topics afterward but what he really wanted to do was just set the space and say hey welcome in like we're gonna have fun but we're also gonna fight the power we're also gonna get to it and so when you were talking, that was something that had initially first came up for me and just the importance of um, all of the disciplines, all of the arts and the purpose and the power of bringing what you know best to do into a space and it can be used to create change. And so I think that's really powerful. So back to what Mikla had stated is that you were featured currently in a recent Sun article entitled Colorado Needs to Cut Greenhouse Gas Pollution from Industry. They've put it off until 2023. And so with this, I wanted to know how the decision to not pass rules cutting greenhouse gas emissions um, from large manufacturers until 2023, what the impact of that is. Well, I mean, first of all, one of the number one excuses that we hear about delay is a lack of resources. And I think it's incredibly difficult when you come from an environmental justice community or you work with this to not understand how there can be any revenue available to take on toxics, 
to take on the industry. It's incredibly important that we do those things. And when you can get past the resource argument, you start to talk about leadership and the influence that people have, uh, in particular, large corporations, industrial polluters, donors have to influence what's happening for our communities. You know, a couple years ago, there was an opportunity where the Air Quality Control Commission actually advised to close the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the state of Colorado, in Pueblo, Colorado, um, early. And Excel Energy wrote a letter. And five days later, the Office of Energy showed up. And then they reversed their decision under fear of uh, legal implications. And like, let's be clear, the powerful have lawyers. And we've had to really grind and claw to find our own public health professionals, our own attorneys to take them on. And then there's politics as a part of it. The real thing is you have to understand these large greenhouse gas emitters are also likely letting out other kinds of air toxics. These emitters also have water toxics and water pollution that are associated with their process, long-term soil pollution associated with it. And so there's a cumulative impact, just like the climate crisis is with a cumulative amount of greenhouse gas, we know we have a limit before it begins to have negative implications. That's true here as well for how much nitric dioxides or PFAS can your body take on before you're one ill with something that maybe kills you or makes you susceptible for something like COVID. Now, this isn't the only example where we've seen the Polish administration, in my opinion, make very poor decisions when it came to taking on toxics. Recently, it would appear they caved to the industry around the electrification of vehicles. And what was more disconcerting was that in a meeting of environmental justice leaders, three of us, which were on the Environmental Justice Action Task Force that I co-chair for the entire state of Colorado, and they said, we need more time to meet with disproportionately impacted people. And we said, we've been saying this for decades. We're not gonna buy these excuses. And so what did we do? We went actually and filed for uh, using the procedural rules to advance the timeline. And we're getting smarter about this. We did this at the Water Quality Control Commission as well. The first of its kind, as we understand it, community-driven rulemaking process at this commission. And so when we hit when we hit roadblocks, we have to get smart. We gotta talk to our lawyers. We gotta think about it. And we gotta be centered, I think, in our own values, which are, we have to cut these gases. We owe it to humanity to get these toxics out of our place. And there is a way for us to get this done if we have the courage and the leadership. And so sometimes it's easier for them to say, oh, we're just not gonna do it. But when you put the question in front of them again, you know, you just gotta keep that drum beat going. But the the real impact is, is, is really lost days of school. You think about some of the low-income folks who um, are maybe on Medicare or Medicaid. And so we're paying for what happens on the other end of this. And I think the thing that's also scary about these large manufacturers is that in many of these towns, there is huge land pressures to build more housing. And so they are what I would consider almost a modern day redlining of building affordable housing in harm's way of pollution sources, just like they did in the past. It's now based on income, but there's so many other pieces that are layered into that. So it's a bummer. We're gonna keep fighting. There's actually an opportunity for us to get this done now uh, as part of a package of bills that are moving at the state house now. Had a chance to testify on it um, just a couple of days ago. I think the thing 
that's disconcerting though is they shoved some other things into this bill that are taking control, for example, of CO2 injection for carbon capture. And one, unproven technology. And two, you don't have the resources to take on this greenhouse gas process or at the Air Quality Control Commission or any of these other commissions, but now you wanna give yourself more responsibility. That doesn't make sense to me and that's what I testified as so. I think you perfectly segued into like the next question I really had, which was what is Colorado missing and like even the United States missing in regards to climate justice initiatives that are not only intersectional, but address the needs of all the communities that are like impacted by these different issues? Well, I think cumulative pollution is number one. It's really high up there, right? You have to understand that there's an additive effect when you mix nine or 10 kinds of toxics together, even if they're not all at a dangerous level, molecules change, there's chemistry that takes place. And we know if you layer all these different colors of paint on together, eventually you get the color black, right? <laughs> that there's this additive effect when you put things together. So that's number one. I think two, language justice is such a huge part of this that especially during the pandemic and even before we think is a deprivation of Title VI rights. And we need to get local communities and states to implement offices with translation, translation core, to be really able to fully engage people in their communities, where they're at, doing the work they're doing. You wanna talk about an intersectional issue right now in Colorado, they're talking about closing Adams 14 school, which sits on a Superfund site and is in the most polluted zip code possibly in America, certainly here in Colorado. Nobody wants to be number one on that list, but yet the environmental racism and that conversation isn't a part of it, right? It's about the parents and low performing teachers. And I think that is uh, you know, so critically missing. I would also say you know, that injustice thrives on boundaries and borders of jurisdiction, of finger pointing across cities. If you look here in Denver, it's literally from the Denver-Adams County border all the way from uh, Wheat Ridge, Prost to basically Aurora. All along that border is this industrial land. All along this border, there's water quality issues. And guess what? We also built light lines through them and we're saying this is where we want to put people. So we really got to talk about remediation and restoration. I think that's an incredibly important part. And then, you know, there's a lot of resources flowing for what they call the Environmental Justice 40, making sure 40% of these dollars go back into our communities. But, you know, how and where the raw materials are built or constructed, right? If, if we're just supercharged roads, but asphalt and concrete are built in our communities, you're actually increasing the amount of pollution. That doesn't work for us. I would also say that we need to make sure contractors um, are from our communities are able to take on this because otherwise we're just going to be transferring billions of dollars and it's not going to be transformational um, against environmental racism. And so lastly, I would say, you know, democracy plays a huge role in this. If you look at the places where so much of this industrial, industrial pollution is, they have some of the lowest voter registration, um, voter participation, and huge gaps between people of color and white voters, of course. And so you know, we need to be working to enfranchise people because it was through that enfranchisement, you know, I have run for office before, but my friend Candy Sitabaka won. We've been able to take it on. Chrissy Douglas and Susan Noble there in, in, in Pueblo, there's leaders, right? We, we have had folks who, like myself, were thrust into injustice and we really were called to lead 
And we need to focus on enfranchisement if we also want to make any change here. Thank you so much for that answer. Uh, I think it enlightens me so much on to like the policy aspects of these things. And like, like we said the last time, the policy paradox, like the wanting for change to happen and then the like the stifling of that said change also within the government that is supposed to be exuding that change. So um, that kind of goes on to my next question. Um, I recently just heard a quote from Mark Twain, which is whiskeys for drinking, waters for fighting. And I wanted to ask, how does this quote resonate with the work you do regarding clean and healthy water for all? Well, I've heard that quote a lot of times and I feel like Mark Twain and all of them are also colonizers. And so, yeah, they were gonna fight over water. They were taking it from people who already had access and had cared for it for millenniums. And if you look at that mindset of, it's about a fight instead of about collaboration and sharing, like say for example, the Asequias in San Luis Valley, then you're never gonna get to a place of understanding like my indigenous elders have taught me, which is water is of the most importance. It belongs to everyone. We have a responsibility to care for it. And that almost means giving it to people for survival. I think what we're seeing here now is a huge fight between urban and rural, right? Where people are trying to live as farmers, fracking water and, the, and how that impacts it. Overall temperatures increase with climate crisis certainly is gonna impact where day zero is. But you know, it's impacted my work in a way, especially with Headwaters Protector where I give a water freely to people. It's not supposed to be about fighting. It's supposed to be about compassion. You know, we've talked before and I was a youth educator. When you're having troubles, when there are, is fighting, sitting down and having a glass of water and then talking to each other is really important. Uh, and I think that if we're gonna fight back against any of these policies, it's gonna be for pure water and it's a righteous fight and so, it's not about control, right? I think that's the difference when you're talking, especially talking about health and water equity. You know, yes, there is some control, I guess, in the sense of like making sure small farmers and other people get access. But I mean, we talked, for example, I was telling you about the Water Quality Control Commission, where for the first time we told, we asked the state to upgrade protections on this river so that we could start regulating industry. And the commission at that time said, nope, only rivers in the mountains get those kind of protections. And we were like, what? So then we got our attorney and we filed to change the rules and the environmental justice action task force in general really has a unique opportunity, I think, to reform policy and procedure to create more access for people and to say that, you know, you need to be balancing health and, and not just balancing health and safety, you need to put health and safety first for people. I am afraid that the lack of, of, of climate work is going to lead to more fighting with lack of resources, but let's be clear. There's enough water for all of us to drink on this planet. There's certainly enough food for us all, but it's our systems of control of those that are broken that haven't made equity an important part or made them really even human rights in a real sense. And then on the other side of it, we have a deep responsibility of you care about these things to waste less. And you're gonna see a lot, I think in the next years of that being super important. I, I've read you know, reports from NASA that say, we're on a multi-decade mega drought as bad as we've seen since the Middle Ages, 18, 8, 850. And guess what? Go back to 850 AD. That's when people started moving out of the, the most beautiful multi-story buildings of my ancestors there by the ancestral Puebloans. You know, and that comes back, I think, to um, some equity and access for water too, 
when you talk about climate migration because drought is is causing a lot of this and then it's causing a lot of harm for people at the borders thank you for that and i completely agree when i heard this quote for the first time because i literally heard it for the first time two days ago in one of my classes my policy lab class and i had to think about who said it why they said it and what they're referring to when they said it and like when mark twain said that all i could think about is you're a colonizer all you know is to fight for and battle and want to conquer resources so of course everything is a fight for you it's so inherent to their existence in our and i came and say in our country in in america in the land of america and even you talking about your ancestors leads into the conversation we we're talking about a cultural capital and i wanted to give you a brief definition of what that really means and it basically is the social assets of a person whether educational intellectual style of speech or style of dress etc that promotes social mobility in a stratified society cultural capital functions uh, as a social relation within an economic practice ie a system of exchange and includes the accumulating cultural knowledge uh, that confers social status and power cultural capital comprises the material and symbolic goods without distinction that society considers rare and worth seeking and so my question for you was how has the presence of cultural capital within your work helped bring visibility to your community as well as initiatives you're passionate about and basically what that means is like how has you bringing ideas of your cultural background in your work amplified visibility around even like the issues we're talking about like intersectional justice um i'd really love to hear more about that well you know it's an interesting time that we're in now because i think that there is more value from the greater society no matter what culture being placed on <clears throat> people owning their identities also understanding how the way you dress the way you talk the educational opportunities you had in the past um shouldn't be hindering you and that they're, they're an additive part of the overall conversation and fabric of our society but i can tell you that you know when my hair's short and i don't have a beard and it's the middle of winter and my skin's lighter i get treated different than when my hair is long or i'm tan i get treated different i can tell you that when I worked at the city, I cut my hair, which, you know, isn't a, isn't necessarily a cultural norm, right? You can keep your hair. It's about as long as I've had it now down to my chest. And I felt a lot of pressure to like up for upward mobility because I was an educator, had a chance to go work in the mayor's office and then the city council's office. And then you start to feel that in order to move up, you need to assimilate, of course, but I really had a mentor who I used to work out with at the gym who worked with the Denver Indian Commission. And I said, how come you wear your earrings to work? Uh, he's like, because I just started one day and I never looked back. And I was like, oh, man, I hate these ties. He's like, well, do you have some beautiful jewelry? I go, yeah, I've been given some. My dad's made it for me. He's like, just start wearing it. And it's like, you know, you want to wear a vest. You want to do these things like, you know, just own it. And I think that a lot of what helps you with mobility in a stratified society is confidence and loving yourself and understanding where you're coming from. I would also say it comes back to that political stuff I talked about of 
moving in and out in a dance. And that doesn't mean you're never going to be offended or you're never going to have something racist said to you. But, you know, you got to feel comfortable in who you are. I would say as a leader, and I think what people in the world are hopeful for now is, right, they want hope. They want to have hope that things can change. I see it not as hope, but as an obligation, that we have an obligation to protect the water, that we have an obligation to treat and have better relationships with ourselves and with nature, and that these things are inherently rights that are socialized across all of us. And so I think that that hope people are seeking, that feeling they have, especially if it's counter to their culture, they see in the confidence of the obligation that Indigenous leaders walk with. Before we head out, I wanted to leave you with one more question, which is what makes you feel safe and how can we better center empathy and dignity of others in our policy work in the future? You know, as I think about this question, I'm a citizen of this country. I work with a lot of people who are not. I understand how that safety feels different. Really, the only time I really felt really unsafe in this work is when there was a road that was clear cut through an ancient Aspen forest in the Gunnison National Forest during COVID, during the lockdown. Around the same time that President Trump was telling everybody they didn't have to worry about things, industry, I mean. And I went up there on a tour with two other people we didn't have any weapons. We just wanted to bear witness to ourselves. We wanted, and it really opened my eyes to one, the sheer volume of destruction that happens to support these industries in the mountains. It was done by Arch Cole, by the way. And we're walking around up there and a person drives up us to on an ATV. Like, I don't know if they had like cameras, like, you know, movement cameras or whatever, but they told us they were bird watching. We told them they were bird watching. I felt very unsafe. I said, this could have been it. And, you know, you think about the indigenous and just activists, especially indigenous activists across the globe. Um, there is a lot of murder, there are a lot of missing and murdered indigenous people who are standing up to be protectors. And so I generally, for the most part, I feel safe, safer, but that was a moment where I didn't. I feel very grounded and enveloped by my ancestors and my community and by the water itself that I'm fighting for to push back and be bold and be confident in what we're saying. We know the future that we wanna see and we're staying on our goal. We attempt at all opportunities to be positive because we know that it's gonna build more bridges. But just because I'm assertive doesn't mean that I'm not being positive too. And um, sometimes you have to assert to move forward to another place. I think that empathy and part of your question, you know, having been an educator and a horticultural therapist, I've done a lot of training in, in psychology. And I think that putting other, yourself into other people's shoes is an incredibly important conversation if you can share it with them. And if not, you know, try your best to explore that. And as I tell others, you know, like, if you're really struggling in this work, you know, go to the water. I mean, that's a really important thing um, to build a relationship with you. It helps you be healed. You know, I guess I, I felt less secure and I certainly had my, some of my dignity stripped from me as a tool of oppression against me when I was jailed for singing. And I come from a community with, with police violence, a lot of things that would lead people my age um, to have at least spent some time incarcerated. And I was very proud that I hadn't, uh, even though I had relatives who had. And when I was, when I was jailed, um, when I had my jewelry removed from my body, 
you know, those were things that were stripping me of my dignity and I was hurting over it. And what I did was I went to my elders and they said, you know, he though we went to jail for sitting in the street for this day, for that day. And then I remember the, just the abuse and it's part of a bigger system. And I guess I, it restores your dignity to know that um, they shouldn't be able to control how you feel about it. And that what you were doing was the right thing. And, um, you know, I, I think that self-care, of course, plays a huge role in that. You have to make the time to actually understand your feelings if you're ever going to feel safe. I think so much of what you just said, too, I was reflecting on, like, feelings of empowerment, that sometimes this work can be very um, distressing to see. And I think what you had said about death is a huge, is very prevalent not only people dying from pollution and from disease, but also being murdered for their advocacy. And so there's just a lot, and I think about this quite a lot, about the emotional toll that gets placed on people who are doing this work. So what empowers you to keep going or what moments throughout your advocacy or throughout your time in politics, whatever, have you felt the most empowered? Well, I'm a really driven person and I've been involved in good in great coalitions that have had success over the years. And I, I can go back to, you know, really being in college and fighting to get composting on my campus, to fight for community gardens, to fight for the change I wanted to see, bike lanes, all these things. The purple recycling dumpsters in the park was one of my first city policy advocacy and, you know, I haven't won them all. I haven't won every ballot initiative I've run, but I got a pretty good percentage. And I think the um, what motivates me is continuing to see the wins. Now, I don't know how I feel if, if it felt like we were always losing. And I wonder if that's what my ancestors felt like. But we're here today and we can get up and we can build bridges with people. And the, I, I'm such an extrovert that I think being around people that comes back to the arts um, really helps restore me. And if you look at my headwaters protectors work in particular, you know, there are people who are like, we're out there every Sunday, the city's still not picking up the trash. I'm like, well, they're picking up the trash we pick up. They're like, yeah, I guess that's true. And they're like, well, we still haven't got access to all the public restrooms. It's like, actually they're, they're building some of these and our advocacy helped, but it wasn't just us. But at the end of the day, the tangible piece is the human connection for somebody who has no, been lost and stripped of dignity to restore that to them and to show them care and love. And I think that if we can be centered in that piece, it's through the love that we grow. And like, and that's why I bring now the music so much more important to rallies, right? Because you can have two kinds of very different rallies, right? We saw it play out on January 6th with anger and hate, or we can have some that bring together people to sing with joy and assertive and firm goals. And I think that if we're gonna talk about really having an intersectional and transformational movement, it will only happen through joy. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. The Rage Podcast is the product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe, follow, like, or share on the platform you are listening to us on. For Rage opportunities and updates, please follow our social media pages. 
You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.